0: Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the Daily Friends Show. Apologies to those of you watching live. We had to start a little bit late today because we are having some tech problems. We haven't been fully able to resolve them, but hopefully they won't cause too much of a problem. I'm your host, Nicholas Garama, today joined by Mr. Michael Morris. Michael, how are you doing? I'm fine, thank
1: you. Apart from being the source of the tech problems today, but I hope that uh, load shedding notwithstanding, we should be fine. Nice to join you both.
0: Indeed, and said tech problems are the fact that uh, it takes a little while sometimes for Michael to hear what I've said. So, if you are wondering, that is <laughs> what that is. Uh, that, that's the problem. But anyway, I'm also joined today by Mr. Chris Hutton. Chris, how are you?
2: My hi Michael. It was uh, good to be back on with you both. I'm sure, we have quite a bit on the agenda. I don't think the problem is the technology necessarily. It's just Michael and his vast intellect. Mike's, you know, he's still processing through things that the rest <laughs> of us can't deal with immediately, so it takes a little bit of work. <laughs> all right. Uh, just some housekeeping I am sorry.
0: I have started. Be- <laughs> um, the first thing I'm going to talk about is that uh, if you do like the show, if you do enjoy the show, please like and subscribe to us on YouTube or leave us reviews on the podcast app if you're listening to us on audio only. Um, also, this is our last 30-minute show for the year. We will be doing the normal Daily Friend rap shows uh, until Thursday. And on Friday, there will be a special, much like last year, where I interview IRR CEO John Endress, talking a little bit about the year that was and the year ahead. And that'll be a special that'll be probably around an hour long, 40 minutes long. We'll see how that goes. But uh, without any further interruptions, let us get into the story of today. Now, many people last week were very excited By what was going on with the ANC which is that uh, among all the problems that the party is suffering from right now internal factional fights inability to kind of uh, you know point to any great governance successes in recent years Uh, and bad polling numbers the ANC is now being faced with liquidation of its assets because it has according to the courts not paid a bill that was due um from the 2019 election the company Uzulwini, uh uh has uh, managed to win a court case against the ANC. they actually appealed the first court case because they lost and the appeal was unsuccessful in fact they will uh the the company that was demanding they pay the money um has been granted costs so today the uh, sheriff uh showed up at the court Uh, or rather at the ANC's head office in Latuli House to go and look at what assets could be seized to pay off the debt because the ANC is refusing to pay the money. Um, It's not clear whether that's because they don't want to or because they just don't have the money or or it could be either. Um, So no assets have been removed yet, but the sheriff of the court has cataloged everything. Uh, Items cataloged include laptops, couches, and printers. (laughs) Now, Chris, let me start with you. If I was about to fight one of the most important elections in my organization's history, if I was in trouble in the polls, the last thing I would want on this earth is to have my assets seized from my office and headlines talking about how I don't have any money. What do you make of this?
2: Indeed, uh, not to torture the metaphor, the sort of mixing of imagery and fact too much, but that the security guard is reported to have said, you know, the, the sheriff arrived and then uh, they left with nothing, maybe it shows you intellectually and physically, there's nothing of worth left within the ANC anymore, intellectually, policy-wise, et cetera, et cetera. So a good, I don't know, concrete summation of the situation in which the party finds itself and a lot of pressures coming to bear. Um, this might manifest in more desperate moves, You'll see promises of various reforms. You might get a doubling down on something like the NHI or EWC, basic income grant. Uh, You might have certain premiers making more ostentatious promises in the lead up to the elections as they try and mask over these very basic operational and financial challenges that they're facing. Uh, In previous elections, especially in the last two, the, the previous national but also the previous local government election, polling also indicated the party on a downward trajectory, but their their on-the-ground machinery tends to perform quite well in the immediate lead-up to an election. That sort of thing becomes all the more difficult if you just don't have the money to to pay party officials, to pay people to appear, uh, to get buckies, moving pamphlets and banners, just those things that you might take for granted that you see posters adorning lampposts and increasing visibility, paying for uh, fuel to go to rallies, that kind of thing, don't take for granted the sort of impact that this will have on the party. And as it comes under more pressure, you open up the door to other sources of funding, possibly, um, as we're looking at what has been reported or not in terms of party funding over the last week. few questions around whether the party really has collected only, was it 800,000 or something like that? You'll correct me if I'm wrong. You ask the question, mm, compared to other parties, it truly really can't be. Can't be that low. So, yeah, as you rightly point out, a lot of things coming to bear on the party now. And I don't know if they've got the wherewithal to deal with all of this adequately and above board.
0: So I see people are asking uh, the question in the comments here and also have been asking the question um, in sort of the space in general is, you know, surely this means the ANC won't be able to get on the ballot. Well, I'm pretty sure they will be able to because they will find the money. Someone will give them money for this. I'm sure they'll be able to <clears> to, <throat> to, to scrape together what they need to. So I don't think that's going to be an issue. But this does speak to the overall inefficiency of their whole election campaign. So, Michael, um, I don't know what your thoughts on this are, but... Uh, There was, I think, some reporting, and and I'm going to have to go double-check this number. I apologize. um, But that the ANC, over the last couple of years, has spent something like 1.9 billion rand. And yet, it seems to be out of cash. It kind of raises the question, you know, where did all of this go? Mm,
1: Indeed. I I did see a report that seemed to imply that, you know, or or describe this all... Having happened under Paul Mashatile's uh, tenure as as finance head, so it appeared to be a, an implicit question mark over over his handling of ANC finances. So it it is a, it is a big worry. Um, the uh, the comment of the um, the, the, the individual, the, the representative of the the company concerned that's owed 100 million is, Weni, uh, is a is chap called Peter Fernando. He says. We can see that they, the ANC, don't want to pay. They don't respect the judgment given by the High Court. They are undermining the justice system, and we are disappointed that the ruling party is behaving in that manner. Um, and we want to see that this is uh, this is not prolonged. So <clears throat> it, it is a, a, a very significant indictment, I, th- I think. Um, but uh, Chris is absolutely correct to draw attention to the very really practical uh, considerations here. It's it's also. A practical crisis, a material crisis for a ruling party, and I think it, it, Chris is also right to make the connection between the, this kind of ideological dead ends and the, you know, gathering uh, financial crisis. Because, and it is a question, as as he rightly says, of taking for granted the kind of economic realities that we all would be inclined to, you know, we we do incline to take for granted. Putting up posters and sending officials out and having pamphlets produced and having buckies arriving at the right place at the right time with with things that are required for for electioneering, but you take the, 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 that taking for granted of the the kind of economic um, requirements of running a good election is actually mirrored in the the ideological taking for granted of how the country works, how the economy is going to succeed, how people are going to get jobs. Um, And I think the the nexus of these two things is is perfectly captured in the crisis that now confronts the party on its its financial terrain.
0: That's exactly right. And uh, I guess this remains to be seen what the sort of effect is going to be um, at large. But uh, I think this is one of those things where if we see major political change in the country after the next election, people are going to point to this and say, you know, it was sort of obvious beforehand uh, <laughs> that this was coming mm-hmm. because it will be, you know, one of those uh, one of those, uh, uh, signpost moments. Um,
2: Chris, mm-hmm. any final thoughts on this one before we move on? Just to, I guess, summarize the financial woe. So according to a few reports over the weekend, between 2018 to 2022, the parties recorded a loss of 244 million rand on operating costs of 2.1 billion rand over the same period. Now they do have a property portfolio valued at 323 million, assuming that you can sell all that property that doesn't come nearly close to what you need for all those losses. So it really concretizes how difficult things are at the moment. And, um, yeah, if anyone in in big business sees this as an opportunity to help the ANC and that they will reform, please resist that temptation. Let them deal with the fruits of their actions. You can work with other political parties and support those instead. Do not be tempted to get involved at their hour of need. I think this is this doesn't account for the destruction they've caused to the country, especially over the last ten years with unemployment over 40%. Uh, too many citizens forced to rely on pit latrines. Not able to go to good schools, all that kind of thing. this is if we were ever looking for cosmic justice, um, this looks like a pretty good point for the party to be in., no, definitely.
0: God, the mind boggles at how one could spend so much money so badly, but uh, you know <laughs> the mysteries of South Africa are ever ever multiplying. Okay, let us get on to our next story, and this is an opinion piece that Michael wrote um, about. Procurement. So procurement yes. and the influence of uh, public procurement has been uh, preferential procurement rather on public procurement has been a hot topic at least since the Zonder Commission report came out, talking about how state capture, as it is called, uh, really ruined many of the country's institutions. Um, Michael, do you want to just take us a little bit through what you wrote in your piece and what this, what lessons this can teach us?
1: Mm, indeed, so th- the piece, in fact, focuses on a um, on an inaugural uh, report, the first report of its kind, by the City of Cape Town. It's it's called a value for money report. So very plainly stated what its objective is, and it is looking at um, some two thousand contracts and three hundred commodities that are classified as essential to city service delivery over the period twenty twenty one and twenty twenty two, and to analyse. The, um, the 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 kind of value for money scale of those of those uh, of those deals, and it's remarkable that as the report says, the City of Cape Town is achieving seventy nine percent, almost eighty percent, of its procurements at below market rates. It, this is absolutely amazing for a range of goods and services that are actually essential to service delivery. Uh, now there you know a range of different things to be said about this. One of the points that I make in my column today is that this is not merely uh, a gain for the city or a kind of benchmark for the city of Cape Town, but it shows for the future what is achievable for every other metro and every other instance of government um, in in South Africa, that it is possible, um, and they describe how they've done it. Uh, It's a, a combination of maximum competition, of, uh, of, you know, exploiting economies of scale, of negotiating with suppliers and so on, and finding the best deal for the public. That's, you know, that's what they, they set out to achieve, that objective, which they quite rightly regard as their primary objective. They are a public institution, their objective is to deliver good services at the least cost. And the most efficiently, and um, and this is the result. So it is really a very, uh, I think, a very significant benchmark for the city of Cape Town, um, and uh, and 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 more than that, uh, a kind of proof in a way, a proof of of the reason for optimism, our optimism in the future of the country that we can actually turn things around. It, it, it's not a given, it's not inevitable, that we need to live with um, with decline and dysfunction. And it comes down to really very basic uh, principles of governance. One of the reasons why I'm very keen to, uh, was I was very really happy to uh, to revisit this, uh, this column in today's show, is that I wasn't able in my column to give attention to some sentiments expressed by uh, Mr. Siseko Mbandesi, who is the mayoral committee member for finance, mm-hmm. a key figure in the DA administration in Cape Town. And he had this to say, that achieving value for money will further become more difficult if National Treasury approves new preferential procurement regulations as published. Now, we've written a great deal about these. We keep raising uh, objections to them. It's, it's in, in part uh, the, the, the undue emphasis on the skin color of of bidders instead of on the value for money proposition. It's something that our colleague Gabriel Krauser has written about extensively and, and with great insight. Um and 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 Mr. Mbandesi says here, the more you limit who qualifies to bid, the less competition and the higher the prices are likely to be. And similarly, he says, the more emphasis you place on preferential procurement rather than value for money, the less services you can buy for the same money. And this means relatively few business owners benefit rather than those who most need services from the state. So it's a very simple proposition. Elsewhere, um jordan hill uh the the, the the it's very insightful and far, far seeing mayor of cape Town um says says this about the the, the big issue the, the big issue of poverty. the poor are left worse off when the public services on which they depend collapse because public money is badly spent or stolen. Our purpose in Cape Town is to lift people out of poverty over time and good governance is a vital enabler for this. So I think it's a very significant general public interest initiative that they have embarked on, um, and uh, and it sets a very good and high standard for other metros in the country.
0: No, I I completely agree with that. Um, You know, it's always nice to see something working in the country, seeing a blueprint being rolled out that can be used for other projects. Um, that can be used to fix, uh, you know, other cities and other municipalities around the country. Yeah. Um, but, Chris, I want to come to you. You know, one of the things this highlights, and this whole debate over preferential procurement has highlighted this, is how kind of twisted and insane the logic of, of a preferential procurement, BEE, that kind of stuff has been. Essentially, in practice, these programs, where you prioritize certain... Uh, uh providers based on their race based on their gender based on you know <clears throat> how, how many whether they're disabled etc et etc cetera, et cetera, have the effect of making life worse for the poor and enriching the rich it's literally sort of mm. what you know a socialist organization like the ANC might accuse malevolent capitalists of doing um, because you're you're saying okay we're going to pay more for government services uh to make a business person very wealthy because of their race and in turn poor people who may in many cases in south africa of course the same race they're black uh are screwed over because their services are worse they get worse quality stuff the you know options for what they can get from their government are worse and uh it's it's so twisted chris your your thoughts on this
2: it's easy for me to say that that is always the case with socialist governments, but it tends to be in 99.999999% of cases that does manifest. So you've got the clothing or the garb of caring for the poor, uh, being progressive, building a developmental state. But because of the incentives and systems you put in place, you then incentivize wastage, corruption, that kind of thing to happen. So, I'm not even focus on the current governing party, anyone else in national government with the sort of preferential procurement system, it benefits those with political connections, those with the inside line, those with the necessary pool. Um, you get to pre- protect your business or your industry at the cost of the economy as a whole, but because you can then give favors in return, you get um, those contracts and other forms of protection. We're seeing it in the trade policy space with localization master plans where the minutes of meetings are not published, those things aren't shared. So then you ask once, they get into the room, how, who, who, how does it get decided? What the tariffs are um, on certain goods? What are the duties on exports and imports? Why is it a certain way and not another way? Um, so it filters through in terms of all other, I guess, areas of the economy and, and governance as well. So it comes as, as little surprise when these things manifest. And we, not to dismiss corruption too easily, because as you say, then resources aren't allocated properly Uh, with the government under more financial pressure the service delivery for those who can't afford for example to go off grid with electricity and things that service delivery doesn't happen but with so much focus on something like state capture that again is is a necessary consequence of this sort of system of these sorts of ideas and policies again because you favor political connectedness those kinds of friendships not really meritocratic service delivery or anything like that competing on equal terms there was a lot of focus this past weekend on the car power ship deal and a scathing judgment, um, I can't remember exactly in which court, but that was posted by Amabungani. the story broken by them over the weekend where, again, the focus is just on ticking the box of transformation, as it were, not actually delivering in terms of substantive economic growth and improved service delivery. So these things continue to manifest all around, and I don't think it's the end of the story necessarily. Um, Hopefully the city of Cape Town sets a very good precedent and others start adopting it, and you start to change the incentives and the human behavior, but you're, you're going to con- see, going to continue seeing it manifest in different places. Uh, Chief Justice Zondo, in the last few months has said he, in his view, Parliament at this point in time would be incapable of stopping state capture 2.0, and he's exactly right because the same systems and ideas that gave rise to it, like preferential procurement, are still in place. right, you actually right. have you to change, have change the way change. the. Way this
0: um, in order to get different results. you know, <laughs> It's not like, oh, well, we learned our lesson, but everything's just going to magically be better. You actually have to change the rules to get different results. Um, Michael, any final thoughts on this before we move on to our next topic?
1: Hmm. I, perhaps just to highlight <clears throat> just one comparative example that the the Cape Town report gives between itself and and ESCOM as it happens. Um, so uh, just uh, just three items. It's, it's just quite an, uh, a demonstrative sort of example. Cape Town pays 11 rand for a litre of milk to ESCOM's 21 rand. Uh, 93 cents for a black refuse bag to ESCOM's, wait for it, 51 rand. <laughs> 93 cents to ESCOM's 51 Rand, and 3 Rand for a one-ply roll of toilet paper to ESCOM's 26. So, clearly... As uh, as you've been, both of you kind of indicated, renegotiating these three items is not going to turn the whole thing around. But if you do begin to assert the principle that it's got to be value for money, it's got to be transparency, um, this is a start uh, in, in, of the move in the right, in the, in the right direction. And there was just, finally, the kind of final point is, Jordan Hill-Lewis uh, highlights three things. Transparency, like I've just mentioned, more competitive economic activity, and public value from municipal spending, these three things. And the point that we make at the IRR is that um, in the the absence of these things, growth and everything that comes with it, the jobs, the new business, more tax, better services, better lives, uh, remain beyond everybody's reach, from the the dwindling ranks of the the hard-pressed middle-class section of society to the millions of jobless poor who, sadly and tragically and unnecessarily, uh, remain to a large extent economic outsiders in their own country. So I think a a significant uh, symbol of what is is possible to turn all that
0: around. Uh, that, that comparison between the black plastic garbage bags, it's, <laughs> that's incredible. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> okay, let us move on to our last story for today. And this is a very interesting story in what it says about one of the world's major nations. So anyone who's been following China recently will know that China has been going through some (coughs) economic troubles. Uh, Sort of all the talk of the Chinese century has become a little bit more cautious um, as as China has recently suffered from some major economic setbacks. Now it still has, according to official (coughs) figures, pretty reasonable, robust growth, the kind of growth that South Africa would kill for. And yet it doesn't seem to entirely be going the uh, massively emerging Chinese middle class's way. So a story that recently went viral internally on Chinese social media. um, China has completely sort of separate internal social media networks that keep it separate from the rest of the Internet. Uh, This young couple who are in their uh, 30s, Zhang, Yilang and Dong Legion have been broadcasting on social media, as, as many people do, their lives, starting with the moment they purchased their flat. It was a flat that was set to be built. Um, it hadn't been completed yet. And they basically were kind of an emblem of many people in the Chinese middle classes, uh, people whose ancestors were probably lived in desperate poverty, His parents or grandparents lived in desperate poverty, who are now taking a shot at living a sort of fairly comfortable middle-class life. But over the last two years, their social media posts slowly took a different turn. Um, They became more difficult, less good news. Uh, The the lady in the couple got a significant pay decrease. At one point, she had to take a pay cut to keep her job. And there was a video of her, Crying about this. And then eventually in May 2022, their flat, which had been purchased the previous year, um, the company that was supposed to be building it admitted to financial problems after missing an interest payment deadline on the bond. So we've seen lots of talk of uh, real estate companies in China in danger of going bust or having already gone bust. This couple then were not able to get access to their home. It apparently had not been built Uh, So they went to a live meeting of the company to protest and to ask what had happened to their house and how they were going to get access to it and some other money that that the company owed them. And from that point on, their social media accounts disappear, um, or at least the posts on them disappear. It's only the older posts. They did film some videos, screenshots of which circulated on the Chinese internet for a time, but their content was all deleted by the Chinese state census because apparently the company... Uh, according to people on Chinese social media, beat them up with a group of heavily armed security guards, uh, and then sent them to hospital. Now, the company says that they are going to uh, look into this. Uh, they didn't. Well, they didn't fully respond to questions on this. Uh, the local Chinese police said that they had quote unquote punished the attackers, but this really is a little bit of a microcosm of what exactly it's like. I think why you know, aspirations of advancing in Chinese society are severely limited by the fact that they may have some economic freedoms, but ultimately, they do not have political freedom in the country. Um, most of the discussion of this incident has been stamped down on viciously on Chinese media. So it's difficult to actually see uh, comments uh, or, or screenshots or discussions of this. But Michael, let me start with you. You know, this is uh, one of the things about the comments on this on the story of this this couple was uh, lots of Chinese commenters saying this is this is me this is us this is the youth generation, the Chinese dream as it has been described by Xi Jinping, Chinese president, is just not achievable. But what do you make of this? Mm. Uh,
1: it's a subject that's very close to our heart at the IRR because we make a very strong argument for two simultaneous objectives. Being growth and liberty, and we see these as being indispensably uh, inseparable um, difficult the, there 's always a challenge when you uh, when you encourage and you champion the freedom of of of, of, of everyone else it's one thing to want to be free oneself um, but here we have a, a very a very crisp example um, of uh, exactly what happens in a society that whatever the growth whatever its economic miracle might be. In the absence of those fundamental liberties, those fundamental freedoms, uh, there is a vulnerability, a weakness. Um, it's quite shocking to read, uh, Mr. Ms. Dong, uh, uh, Mr. Zwang, I beg your pardon. Re- re- referring to uh, to the crisis they're facing, there are a lot of rules in this society for us to follow. It's not unusual that our videos got restricted or disappeared. I mean, that's absolutely astonishing. We're very lucky, I think, in South Africa to have a robust. Uh, sense of our own freedom I I think it'd be very difficult for any authority here to to get away with impinging on our lives in the way that um, that the the Chinese Communist Party has in China but it it, much more importantly it does I think send an an alert to people that the especially for us in conditions of very grave economic peril that simply having growth simply having more jobs uh, better economic policies and so on without the attendant conditions of, that liberty brings to a society is not in fact a sound objective. You need to have them both. If it's going to be sustainable, if it's going to be invulnerable to all the pressures that, that, that come with change, um, we need to have both the growth and and the, the liberty, and this is a an you know, a, a, a absolutely wonderful microcos- microcosmic picture of what happens in the society where indeed there have been mammoth um, successes in lifting millions of people out of poverty, um, but without uh, the, the liberty to go with it when things become more difficult, as inevitably happens in the economics, um, the, the vulnerability becomes very pronounced. Uh, so, yeah, a very interesting and, and, and kind of emblematic uh, piece from the BBC about this young
0: couple. That's exactly right. And I, I think the key for me in many ways there is is the sustainable aspect, because I think what, and this is uh, more speculation on my part, but Chris, I want your thoughts on it, is that China kind of shows why the freedom stuff is important you can have cool. economic growth, sure. At the end of the day, if you don't have freedom to criticize, if you don't have freedom to change things, um, to to correct mistakes, if you don't have that sort of freedom to push back in society, you can't avoid disasters that you know may, that may be walked into by the, by the state or recover from them. Um, there's there's a sort of flexibility that's lost in your state, and so you may get great economic growth, but it's ultimately built upon a foundation of sand. Um, Chris, final thoughts on this one? Yeah, Nick, you and I
2: have tried to follow it in, in more detail as much as one can. But for example, after the latest uh, Congress of the Chinese Communist Party and various purges, if one can call it that, of people who were thought to be closer to President Xi Jinping, but maybe they're not so much uh, in the upper echelons anymore points to a bit of uncertainty, not just in their own beliefs and policy direction and ideology, but also maybe an unwillingness to acknowledge the challenges that the country is faced with. So issues in property markets, a lot of debt, uh, consumers... Right. Just on that point,
0: when, when the uh, uh, information came out showing that Chinese youth unemployment was really um, not going in the right direction, the Chinese government just stopped publishing the data. <laughs>
2: Yeah, exactly. So all of this points you to, as you say, do you really believe in your ideas anymore? Or is it a case of you think you can control your little petri dish of s- managing a society and hope that you can make the decisions for billions of individuals? Um, and I think those pressures will continue for the time being, because we're not seeing the sort of economic progress that uh, assuage some of the desires amongst Chinese citizens for more liberty. Uh, more civil rights, more of those sorts of freedoms, um, and that could come to a head in very nasty ways for the government moving forward. No, definitely, it's something to very closely watch
0: because how goes China, I think, will very drastically affect the the not just the global economy but global geopolitics um, for for many years to come. Anyway, yeah. we are out of time, so thank you very much for listening. We hope that you found the show interesting. Uh, Like I said, this will be our last 30-minute show of the year, so I hope uh, all of you have a wonderful end-of-year break, Christmas, or whatever you may be celebrating in the holidays. Uh, Have a good one, and we will see you all tomorrow with the Daily Friend Wrap. Cheers. Cheers.